0: Heidi Schrock is here from Roost in Austria. Nice to see you.
1: Hello. Good to be here.
0: Very nice to have you here. So your family firm started really with your father.
1: My family started around 1770 with a farm, but my father was the first to concentrate on wine. So he was only having vineyards and and farming grapes.
0: And what's Roost like?
1: Roost is a lovely, small, pittoresque town with very old houses. You know, the houses were all built in the 16th, 17th century. And as very important markets got lost in the Seven Years' War between Maria Theresia and Friedrich II, the houses are still like that because all by the sudden the money ran out and so they couldn't modernize. And so we have these beautiful old houses. And the very special thing is that In these beautiful old houses, we have our farms, which is sometimes not very easy because it's small and tiny and narrow and steep staircases, but it's, of course, a very, very beautiful atmosphere.
0: So at one time, Roost was very prosperous, and then it went through a period where it was harder to make money there.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was maybe in the 16th, 17th century, especially when sweet things were very rare, like It was only honey, and it was made, it's the wine made out of honey, Uh, but sugar out of the sugar beet was not invented. So other sweet things, like noble sweet wine, were very precious and very thought after. And so this was maybe our really glorious time.
0: Because Roost is known for Rooster Osbrook, historically and today, which is a sweet wine.
1: Yes, by the lake, by the enormous Water surface of Lake Noisiel. We have, in almost every year, we have botrytis, and so we can make noble sweet wines.
0: So there's a really long, shallow lake there, and it gives the
1: humidity. Yes, it's only one and a half meter deep, so you can walk through if you're tall enough, like you, Livy. Uh, and this provides this this really humid climate, like yeah, Congo.
0: <laughs> like the Congo, yeah. <laughs> like, the trees are a little different, though. Yes. Right? Yeah. <laughs> so, what's the history politically of Rus? Because it's its own free state, right? Or free town. Yeah,
1: yeah. The Rusters were... Always had this this intention to be free. And so, in 1681... They asked the emperor that he, they, they want to be a free city, and uh, in 1681 the emperor needed money because the Turks were moving forward and he had to fight against them. And of course he liked the wine, and so he asked for an enormous uh, sum of money and also an enormous sum of, of wine, of noble sweet wine, and then they got this right of a free city. Then they had to build a wall around the town with four big gates. It was only 1,000 something inhabitants. And we are still not many more. And then they had the right, especially the economic right, to export the wines more easy. Because Europe at that time, you know, was divided into many small compounds. And each of these small countries had an own border. And But with this right, they could go through more easy and and really trade with the wine.
0: So Roost, in terms of its wines, was able to reach markets that most people in Europe were not able to reach because a lot of the markets were local markets or kind of statewide markets, but you couldn't sell outside of that. But because Roost had this kind of unique political situation, it ended up being very prosperous because they could trade with more partners.
1: Yes, and the noble sweet wine. It was only Tokai in Hungary, and we also were Hungary, of course, and the Rusta Ausbruch, which were these Novospeed wines, and uh, it was very expensive, so all these dukes and kings, they ordered wine from Rost, and of course this was the entrance into many markets.
0: Because Rost is physically close to Hungary as well.
1: Yeah, uh, now six kilometers, and Rost was part of the kingdom of Hungary until... World War One. After World War I, the Burgenland became the part of Austria.
0: Oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that, that it did shifted like that. So it's kind of like Alsace in that way.
1: Yeah, and therefore we share a lot of things with Hungary. Not only some varieties, grape varieties like Furmint and Blau Frankish, Kek in Hungary, uh, but we also share our kitchen, the food we eat. The cakes we bake, this is all Hungarian-influenced.
0: That makes sense, because I think a lot of times when people think of Austria, they think of the Wachau or the Kamtal, but where you are is like a whole other thing.
1: Whole other thing. You go down from Vienna, southeast of Vienna, and then there is a hill range, the Leitergebirge, and if you go across that, a very... Flat country starts, a few hills, and on these few hills, on the Hügelland, it's called like that, there are our vineyards. But going eastwards, it's really flat country.
0: In terms of the vineyard, has that changed over time? I mean, is it still fundamentally the same vineyard that it was in the 16th, 17th century, or is there differences? Or
1: yeah, I brought a map which shows you the vineyards, and it's a map from 1783, and actually the vineyards are still the same. There is only one part, the newer part, which goes direction north, northwest, and these vineyards were only planted, I think, after Phylloxera, when the demand for wine grew, and then the Rusto thought, okay, let's, let's also plant these vineyards. But the old hill, maybe this goes back to the... 13th whatever century. In Ruste was also a Roman settlement and maybe the Romans started to to grow wine because each Roman soldier had the right of a certain amount of wine per day and it was far too expensive to transport all these Italian wines so they always planted wines where they had their, their lager.
0: Is there a difference in style between those old vineyards and new vineyards in terms of climatic conditions or how they're laid out? Or?
1: Uh, what I can see and what I have experienced throughout this over 30 years now is that on this old hill, on this old hill where the vineyards have been there since the 13th century, frost Isn't so hard affecting the vines like in the newer part. If something happens, it always happens in this newer part which is there maybe 140, 150 years. The vineyards are smaller on this old hill and you know not so drawn like in, in really squares. It's it's sometimes it's only a triangle and and they are very small. And in the newer part it's more like you know New York shaped (laughs) did it maybe a little bit uh with more consciousness
0: and is uh, the soil fundamentally the same or the exposure or is that different
1: it's different it's very different on this old hill we have many many different stones many different quartzes, and you find ammonites and on the newer part it's it's more loamy sand and limestone
0: do you find a different kind of wine made in those two areas? Does it result in something different?
1: Yeah, you could uh, see a difference. It's more the mineralic style on the old hill, and maybe it's a little bit more acidity and a, b- a little bit less acidity on this loamier sense.
0: And do certain grape varieties, because you mentioned that some are Hungarian and there's sort of a mix there of what we think of as Austrian grape varieties, what we think of as Hungarian grape varieties, what we think of as kind of European, pan-European grape varieties. So do certain grape varieties go into certain places?
1: When my father told me, you know, or taught me how, how to do it, and he said, in this vineyard you can plant everything. Everything will grow like in the Turner because it's such a good soil. The Pinot Blanc, by example, or the Pinot Gris, I grow on the limestone soils because I remember Mark Kreidenweis from Alsace, he told me that. Limestone is super good for Pinot Blanc. It reduces the acidity automatically by the soil. I don't know if if this is true, but you can taste it. It's softer, it's creamier.
0: What was your own route to the winery? Did you decide right away that you wanted to work there or did something happen to have that decision?
1: I was uh, going to school in Eisenstadt, which is close to Rust and I made gymnasium. I made Matura there. And when I finished school at 18, I thought, yeah, maybe why not to go into the, the wine thing? And my father also asked me if I wasn't interested because he was going to be 60 soon and wanted to retire. And I worked for one year in Germany. And after that year, I thought, okay, let's stick to that. And then I made my whole education.
0: Was it common for there to be uh, female winemakers in Austria or in Roost?
1: No, I started in 79, and it was very uncommon. And I, I still am very thankful to this German wine estate in Rheinhessen, who took me as a girl, teaching me all those things. But it was very uncommon. We were paradise birds in these days.
0: When you went back to work with your father around 83, what was the condition of the, the estate and the property and the, the vineyards?
1: The house where I moved in and where I'm still living is an old house. And it was really, we had one plug per room, maybe. <laughs> and if the washing machine was on, we couldn't put the press on. So it was really very, very old, and but beautiful. And uh, the cellar was very old. We still had a sand soil. So all the water uh, with which I washed the barrels, we had to carry upstairs. <laughs> And uh, so step by step, we, we made it workable.
0: What was the condition for the wines of Roost at that time, like in the 80s? What was going on?
1: A very big difference was that in these years, we always harvested a vineyard like it was. So we did not uh, make selections of portritis-affected berries, but we took the whole vineyard. And all these wines had this kind of honey portritis characters, in some years more, in some years less. And what we changed, and 88 was my first year to do that, was to go for Ausbruch, what means to pick the portritis-affected berries out in several walk through the vineyards in several pickings and um, this was maybe the biggest difference and this is of course a difference in style because the dry wines got fresher, got clearer. By getting these wines clearer and rust an area with lower acidity, generally we have low acidities and therefore it was nice to have this little bit higher acidity you see. And uh, the these wines got sweeter.
0: So what was the market like in the 80s? I mean, what were people asking for?
1: Of course, we had a lot of private customers who came from Vienna. They opened their trunks and they filled it with cases of wine and went back. And it was very common to have your wine estate where you picked your wine. It changed nowadays that people are touring, of course, through the whole Burgenland and getting one case each (laughs) and filling the trunk, but from various uh, spots, because it's interesting to taste wines from everywhere. But in these days, it was like that, that you went to your wine estate and fill your trunk with, with these wines. And my father also sold wine in bulk. It was very good at that time the price was was fine and many of these uh, big wine merchants who picked the wine who bought the wine they put the name of where the wine came from on the label so it was it was very good to sell wine in bulk it was not anonymous that they put the wine in a big tank and it was part of a big blend but if the wine was very good they bottled it Separately, and uh, we had almost no export. Only if some clients came from Germany or Switzerland, they took the wine to their countries back. This was the only private exports.
0: So in the eighties, it was more of a local clientele in a way. Yes. And when had that shifted? Because you know, before we spoke about it being very prosperous from export. So when in the twentieth century did things sort of shift? You
1: know, I think a. Very big change was when the Burgenland became part of Austria because our old markets in Hungary, in Russia, wherever they got lost because you know the demand on yeah, it was not so so famous that they wanted to buy Rust and, and looked for that. And things changed a lot and I think business broke down then. I have a, a an old map at home from a printer in Rust who printed uh, labels, wine labels. And you can see some of, of wine labels from 1921, 1923, things like that, but not a lot. I think it was not that important to bottle the wine then. And maybe after World War II in the 50s, the first uh, winemakers started to bottle their wines again. And then it started, but slowly. In the 90s, then, it really started that people were interested in wines from this special wine estate. Uh, the Rosta Ausbruch was kind of a renaissance, and uh, people got very interested in the sweet wines and, of course, red wines. The 90s were an absolutely red wine boom, and some of the estates in our area, they changed from maybe 50-50, they started to have, or they changed, maybe 80 red wine, 20 white wine. So it was really, red wine was booming. And Rust has very good areas for red wine, especially for the Blaufränkisch. And as you know, the young winemakers like me, the, in those days, they went to South Africa, to California, to Australia, for to work on a wine estate for a year or for two years. And coming back, we all got to know Cabernet Sauvignon, we got to know Shiraz. we got to know Mellow, and we all thought, okay, we could not survive without these Globetrotter grape varieties. And this was also the time when these varieties were planted. Now it goes back to the traditional, to the very good Blaufränkisch, which survived. Because, you know, Cabernet Sauvignon is used to southern climate, and we can have quite rough climate. And, And in some years, it did not work out really well.
0: So was Chardonnay historically there, or is that more of a recent introduction?
1: Chardonnay actually has a long history here. It was called Klefner or Morillon in our area, and people always thought it was related to Pinot Blanc. So if you look at the grapes, if you look at the leaves, there is a kind of relationship. And uh, so Chardonnay is obviously, an, and Sauvignon Blanc also. I have a bottle of a 1967 Rusterausbruch from Sauvignon Blanc, which my father bottled. And so it must have been there for quite longer time. I think after Phylloxera, a lot of newer varieties arrived. Phylloxera was the time between, let's say, 1870 to 1890. And at that time, yeah, all the vineyards were devastated. I was told that my great-grandfather wanted to emigrate to Southwest Africa because he didn't see any future here, with all these vineyards being dead, and but his wife didn't follow him, so they stayed. Yeah, and I think a lot of new varieties arrived in that time, which is uh, another variety, which is very old, is the Gelba Muscatella, which was called Vaira in the old times, and that comes from incense. It was a, a smelly, a wonderful aromatic variety and people knew aroma from church you see when they entered the church it was incense smelling and therefore they called it like that
0: that's interesting so what is today what is grown in the region you spoke of some hungarian grape varieties as we said different grape varieties from austria and from different parts of europe that have been there actually a long time in certain areas but what's grown today in the roost area
1: The Welsh Riesling is the most planted variety. Welsh Riesling because you can make beautiful dry wines. And Welsh Riesling is one of the best grape varieties for sweet wines because it has this wonderful flavor and acidity. And it can stay out in the vineyards very long. This is making botrytis wines. This is a very, very important factor that the stem is good and the grape variety can be outside until November, sometimes December, and still have good flavors. Welsh Riesling, then the, the Pinot varieties like Pinot Blanc, Pinot Gris, also a little bit of Pinot Noir, Furmint, uh, Gelbo Moscatella, and still, of course, muller Thurgau muller was still a relict from the 50s, you know, muller was, my father told me that they all planted it because it was early ripening, it had a lot of sugar, and uh, people in Rust always wanted to make kind of sweet wines, and muller was an easy grape to do that, and there are still some vineyards from that time's. And with red wines, it's mainly Blaufränkisch and Zweigelt. You know, it's a young variety. It was crossed in 1922. And uh, St. Laurent is getting more and more because it's kind of this very soft, leathery, typical Austrian wine.
0: So it's really quite a mix. Yes. And it's really quite a mix amongst a fairly small amount of producers. There are only about 20 producers today, right?
1: Maybe more, but 20 producers maybe are those who bottle the wines, 20, 25 wine estates. But there are many more who produce grapes and deliver it to some bigger producers.
0: Oh, I see. So there's still a negotiant model where people sell grapes yeah. in the region. Yeah. In terms of understanding the wines, is it more common for there to be blends, whether they be sweet or dry blends, or is it more common for it to be single varietal in the wine?
1: With the dry wines, it's very common to have single varieties. And with noble sweet wines, because it's so, you know, in some years it's very difficult to fill one barrel. And sometimes you don't get it from one variety, so you go through various vineyards. And I think this is a very nice thing to combine that and you have the flavor of Welsh Riesling and the aroma of maybe a little bit Muscat or Sauvignon Blanc and the body of Pinot Blanc, so this makes sense.
0: Do most people release an Ausbruch in the same year? Like if you release an Ausbruch one year, do most of your neighbors also release an Ausbruch that year or does it sort of vary?
1: It varies. This is kind of philosophy of each estate. I think most of, of my neighbors released the Ausbruch two years after the vintage. And sometimes it's only three, four years. Uh, and a couple of years ago, we released one which was 150 months in barrel. And this is really interesting because this proves that this wine needs time. And time is such a, an important factor and maybe the best fining you can do for a wine
0: So I can imagine if you were having a different mix than your neighbor in your Ausbrook, that maybe the maturation or how you made the wine would alter as well. Do you find a lot of divergence in the way that it tastes?
1: When were the berries picked? How long was the skin contact? How long was the fermentation? And these are many factors who lead to a very special style of wine. Some of us ferment in stainless steel tanks. In small ones, of course. Some of us only ferment in barrels. Some of them are new barrels.
0: You know, when I think about, okay, this area used to be in Hungary, and then I think about Hungarian sweet wine, the Tokai model of putting in unfermented berries is not like what you do there, right?
1: No. In Ruste it is not done. In my wine estate, when we come in with these berries, first we have to measure them. You have to put it on a scale. They measure the kilograms, and then he measures the sugar. And then we stamp on them, and we leave the berries for a couple of hours that the juice from the berries soaks out all these aromas, flavors, and so on. And then we press them in a very small press, And uh, this is very good because a very clear must, and really each single drop comes out of these berries. This is very important because the berries are so dry, and very few liquid is only inside. So we have to get everything out, and then it's in the barrels, and ferments maybe half a year. Sometimes it ferments a year.
0: When you started to change things at the winery, you mentioned you know working with the facility you had, what started to happen over time? What did you see necessary in the vineyards or in the winery to innovate?
1: On both fields. We renewed almost all old barrels. I still have one barrel left from the very old days. This is much older than me. We are still using that. But all the other barrels, wooden barrels, are new. We use two different woods. So one is oak. Austrian oak and French oak. And we use acacia. Acacia has a long, long tradition because in this part of Hungary, in the Western Hungary, they had big, big acacia forests. And I think in the old days, they used especially the wood they had. They didn't import wood from very far away countries, but they used the wood they had in the neighborhood. And uh, therefore, acacia was used a lot. And acacia is a very tight wood and I like it very much for Welsh Riesling and Furmint, by example.
0: It must mean in many senses, both in the vineyard and in the winery, that you have to sort of become an expert in a number of grape varieties if you're going to work in this region.
1: Yes, yeah.
0: So what are some of the differences that you see? Uh, you know, you just described one in terms of how you like to mature certain grape varieties, but in terms of farming them and then handling them, what are things that really stand out for you about the different grape varieties?
1: My first thought goes to, by example, Muscatella. Muscatella is like a diva. Uh, It's very sensitive. If during flowering it's a little bit colder, it will break off and freeze. And some of the grape varieties, they tend to get two buds, double buds. And that would be far too much leaves and crop, of course. So you have to break away those. And some are not doing that. Some grow really like beautifully straight ahead and you you don't have a lot of work to do. But some uh, like Sauvignon Blanc grows like parcel in all directions. So you have to take care of that.
0: 30% of your production is red, which seems fairly high for what I often think of as white wine producers from Austria. So when you're dealing with those red grape varieties, what's important?
1: Right from the beginning that you have low crops. And it is very good when the vineyard is older. And I'm not a big fan of breaking leaves away. Because I think the skin of a of a berry is like the skin of of a human being. And it's very sensitive to the sun. So we leave the leaves as long as possible. And rather um, make the canopy a little bit looser. Because sometimes in summer it, it can rain a lot. So the, it's important that the grapes dry and that the wind can go through.
0: So do you see differences in families of grape varieties? Like, do you see a commonality between the Hungarian grapes and grapes from other areas that may have their own commonality? How does it work? Do you see in grapes something that is Hungarian, for instance?
1: Yeah, I think I have a small plantation of Levelu and also, of course, the Furmint. I the first own four vineyard are planted in 1992 so we have some experience with that and those two grape varieties are very similar both have leaves with a velvety under skin so are very sensitive to mildew as you can imagine because mildew likes to sit there and both grapes are long of course pinot blanc Pinot Gris have similarities and with Pinot Gris you find these mutations which look so funny that you know Pinot Gris is a pink grape or light brown grape. Therefore the Pinot Gris wines always have this little copper touch and sometimes you have berries which are half yellow and half pink. So this is this mutation which happens.
0: And do you find that the Pinot Gris that you have is maybe a little different than the Pinot Gris in other parts of Europe? Or
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I remember the English uh, writer, Charles McDonough, he wrote about Pinot Gris, and he said that with Pinot Gris, you can, he could see differences of areas and soils the best. So uh, Pinot Gris from Burgenland is a full-bodied wine. Uh, the acidity is very low. We pick it quite early in order that the acidity doesn't decrease more and more.
0: For the grapes that are sensitive to mildew, like ferment and harsh lavaloo, I mean, I could imagine that being a real problem in a somewhat humid climate like you have.
1: It It is a problem. And we have to be very aware and to watch it really very good. And it's almost impossible for me to travel longer than three, four days Within this period of, let's say, June, July, these are the most dangerous months. For mildew? Yes.
0: With that spread of grape varieties and spread of different kinds of vineyards, as you explained, does that indicate a fairly long harvest? I mean, is it a long cycle?
1: Yes. We start harvesting around the 10th of September with Muscatella, because Muscatella, you want to have this beautiful grapey flavor. Like fresh grapes. And with Muscatella, you don't measure the sugar in order to uh, start the harvest, but you taste the grapes. It's very important to taste the grapes and at the right flavor, you go and pick them. So we start with that and then we carry on. So with the dry wines, maybe we use about two weeks, three weeks, and then we stop and then we wait. And throughout uh, maybe if we begin middle of september throughout october there's always two three days to pick another grape variety stop again and yeah in some years we finalize the washing and putting away all the machines for the harvest which you only use once a year in december so it's two and a half months three months
0: so it must be a little different than your dad's time, because you explained that with your dad, he used to kind of pick the vineyard all at once yes. and make a combined wine.
1: Yes. And you know what? This was a big difference. I remember we very seldom started earlier than beginning of October. We are now starting picking much earlier than in, the, in those days. And when they started, of course, they picked through.
0: Were there a lot of those bottles of your dad's wine in the cellar when you got back? I mean, did you try a lot of those wines?
1: Yeah, there are still a lot of bottles. But unfortunately, or fortunately, it's a very uh, humid cellar and all the labels are rotten. So we, we can open the bottles, but we have to guess what it is. <laughs> I, I was born in 61, so a really good vintage Also in Rust, a very good vintage. And I always asked him, Papa, why uh, don't we have any bottles from 61? And he said, no, because, you know, uh, we, we sold it all. And he started to collect a few bottles, maybe in 69. 69 was a very good vintage in Rust. And then in the 70s, like 73, 76
0: What do you taste when you go back? I've never done anything like that. So I've tasted wines from like the 90s and maybe the 80s from Roost, uh, you know, once or twice here or there, but I've never gone that far back. So it sounds like, you know, how the wines are made today is is broadly different. So when you taste those old wines, what do you see that is maybe different than today in in terms of the taste?
1: Of course, there's also a difference of the vintages, like I recently spoke about the 1973 and this must have been a very good vintage. And if you open a bottle of 73, by example, Welsh Riesling Ausbruch, it's still bright yellow. It has beautiful acidity. And on the other hand, like an 81, which was also a very good year. Um, this is already having brownish influences in color and this is more riper than the 73 so it it differs Uh, what you always find is this typically honey caramel quince portray character this goes through all these wines and you know also it depended on how much sulfur was used by each single vintner
0: in a way the challenge historically was to retain some freshness yes that's what a good vintage would be if it had interest and complexity but it was still fresh after time and so what is a good vintage now like now that the winemaking and harvesting is a little different than it used to be what characterizes a good year like warmer or cooler or
1: I think a good vintage in Rust was always um, a vintage with a lot of noble sweet wine. So it was never big vintage was a good vintage, you see. Uh it was had all always something to do with quality. And nowadays maybe if I think of 2004. This was a great vintage because it was it were beautiful white wines. We had marvelous red wines in this year with a beautiful color and at the end very late i remember it was end of november we had wonderful noble sweet wines so i think it is a combination and this would really be a good vintage 89 by example was similar
0: so you get back in 83 and help your father and then he retires in by 88 and now your son has started at the winery this year Uh, You know, you have two sons, and one started with you at the winery in 2016. So your career is starting to parallel your father's in terms of the handoff. So looking back over that period of time that you've been making the wines there, how have you evolved as a winemaker?
1: When I started, by example, the vineyards, okay, they they were there. They were necessary, of course. They still are. But maybe I... I'm looking at the different vineyards, at the different soils now in a different way to make wines out of the different vineyards. Maybe we planned it afterwards, but we look how do they turn out from this special soil and how do they get, how do they become.
0: So planning it from the soil level. Planning it, Which yeah. originally you weren't doing. Yeah. You were paying maybe more attention to the winemaking part.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, I didn't pay so much attendance to the vineyard because you know they were there this planning of of making sweet wines what do i mean by that that you know if you make very good red wines you have this this idea of okay we have to have leaf management you we cut away a lot of grapes we only leave maybe Four grapes per vine, or something like that. And with sweet wines, we didn't uh, we didn't do that at, at the beginning. And maybe this is also something we I started to do to plan noble sweet wines, how to pick them, how to where and which vineyard sites. Of course, we have to put nets around it. This is something we only started in two thousand six, so it's not it's not long before that. We could just leave the vineyards out. Nothing happened. There were some birds, but they were not really dangerous. But now there are millions. And whenever I plant a new vineyard and I'm deciding to maybe plant a new variety, all the varieties, I check up how good they get botrytis and and how do they fit on this special soil.
0: So I don't know if it was um, just when I was there Uh, in terms of time of the year. But it seemed to me like the evening light uh, had a special quality in roost in terms of the luminosity and how long the evening light held. So do you find that how you plant in terms of the facing of the rose is somewhat important in terms of capturing the light in roost?
1: Our rose, uh, all, in all the vineyards, they they go from east to west and face southeast. And I didn't have to change anything It's given like that, so because the, the vineyards are sometimes really long. Sometimes they are 800 meters long, really. And if you work there in summer, you think they never end. <laughs> There's also an old saying, good vineyards from where you can look at the lake. Makes sense, because they, they are all southeastern oriented. And of course they get the morning sun, and... What is also good about the lake, it stores the heat from the day and gives it up during night. And very often, it happened maybe in May, you know, during May we have late frosts and we already have about 8 centimeters shoots on the vines. Very often the lake, because it was already very warm, protected us from this late frost. It has in many senses, it's very good.
0: I mean, really, without the lake, there'd be no rooster Osbrook, right?
1: Um, There is an old vineyard map from maybe 1860 around. Uh, And on this map, it's not a vineyard map, uh, it's just a map from the lake, and there is no lake. And for about 10 years, it happened from 1866 to 1876, that the lake was dried out. And one of my ancestors wrote in his diary, you could walk across it without making your boot dirty. And after some years, they started to, you know, to lease the land to other people and they planted potatoes. And we know from another book that within these 10 years, there were no noble sweet wines.
0: That's fascinating, actually.
1: Yeah. And it happened that the water came back via one winter, so rain, snow, and from the underneath fountains.
0: Oh, so it's a spring as well.
1: Springs, yes, warm springs.
0: And I wonder with that limestone and sand, I wonder if that sandy part used to be covered with water.
1: Maybe. They told us that there was a big river in the very old days floating down from Vienna to... Uh, Direction Blattensee, Balaton in Hungary, and the river dried out. On these banks of a river, and everybody knows what a bank of a river is like, there are our vineyards. Therefore, you can find all these gravels and stones and schist, and yeah. It's
0: really amazing how wine is so tied to the flow of water in this area.
1: Yes. Rust and Ilmitz of course the both the two sweet wine cities on the lake they are very highly regarded as sweet wine towns
0: So what do you see as the difference between Rust and Ilmitz I mean they are physically close they share the same lake but yes. on different parts of it so if you were to look at the wines on on either side what what's the difference
1: Of course Ilmitz is on the east coast Rust is on the west coast And maybe the biggest difference is the soil. The sandy soils in Ilmit, uh, they are, let's say it like that, closer to the sun. So early ripening. They are maybe a couple of days uh, ahead of us. And Botrytis is on both sides. I mean, if Botrytis is there, it's, it's on both sides.
0: So it's not a year where Roost does really well with the Botrytis and Ilmets doesn't do well with the Botrytis. It's pretty uniform.
1: Funny enough, there are years, very seldom, but there are years. Like in 1999, uh, Roost had a later Botrytis and we had more Botrytis wines like uh, our friends in Ilmets.
0: So because the Botrytis came later that year which harvest earlier had less botrytis wines and and because roost harvest later it was more in the zone for botrytis for you right that's interesting because you know i think a lot of times uh here it, it's hard for consumers to differentiate do you find differences in having to explain dry white wine dry red wine rooster osbrook from different grape varieties as a mix, rooster osbrook in different styles In the market, is that sometimes a challenge? Because I know you frequently travel with your importer to go and see customers. So what do they tell you?
1: Finding your place in a portfolio is maybe a little bit harder because, yeah, there are so many grape varieties and actually I don't grow any of those which are typically Austrian, you know, in the in the international market like Grüner Weltliner and Riesling. These are the grape varieties which are very well known. Um, but, you know, this is the challenge and this is maybe also the chance to show what you can do with uh, wines like noble sweet wines
0: you know, you spoke a lot about kind of your evolution in terms of looking at vineyards and working with vineyards as a winemaker now that you've been doing it for several decades. But what about the winemaking itself? Has some of your approaches changed over time or has it been somewhat uniform for you and your career?
1: Each year, uh, is different and and this is the thing about uh, making wine you can you you can plan the whole year and and think, okay, this year I will do that and suddenly weather changes or you have to you have to pick earlier or whatever, and you can't do all those planned things and you have to react very spontaneously um, yeah um maybe. Accepting more, maybe uh, trusting more The yeah, how it goes that the wines, uh, and give them more time. Maybe this is, this is something what, what I changed. Leaving hands off and leaving the wines longer on the lease. Uh, having more lease contact. Uh, sometimes like the Pinot Gris uh, stays on the lease for about a year. And just before the next harvest, we bottle it. So this is maybe the biggest difference.
0: So when you leave it longer on the leaves, what happens? Does it become a little more reductive? Does the texture change? What occurs?
1: It's so interesting to watch the wine during the whole period of ripening. Our wine cellar is very deep. And in winter... Um, we have degrees around about six, seven degrees. In summer, they crawl up to about 16 degrees. And this temperature also has an effect on the development of the wine. And we taste them maybe once a week during the whole year. And it changes and how it gets from this fresh, yeasty, fermentation-reductive style right at the beginning, and it gets riper, creamier, clearer, and all these aromas develop through this time. So this is really interesting. And now doing that together with my boys and we taste together, we speak together and they have different experiences. Georg worked in New Zealand, in France so and he tastes a lot of wines so we have this experience of three tongues.
0: Has that brought something back to your own technique?
1: Last Vintage we by example uh, we made two wines where we we put about 100 kilograms, not a lot, 100 kilograms of really beautiful, fresh berries, the de berries, into the wooden barrel. And then we filled up with the juice and let it ferment on the skins. And those two barrels are right now my two favorite barrels in the cellar. And this is the idea and influence of my boys.
0: So uh, texturally, it must be very different.
1: yes. A bit more tannins, but also uh, very interesting fruit flavors. Also, a little bit aroma wise different. Yeah. Not so fruit driven like those without skins.
0: And do the whites typically go through mallow or no?
1: Um, if they do, they do.
0: Yeah. Sometimes yeah. they do and sometimes yeah. they don't.
1: Honestly, yeah.
0: So, has that ever meant that um, like, it's gone through mallow and bottle later or
1: no? Very early when I started, I, I had that. And you know, when I started to make, for example, red wine in 83, 84, we had no mellow on them. It was funny. A uh, uh, Blaufränkisch in these days had 7.6 acidity and it was good. So, all this mellow discussion and, 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 and doing malolactic fermentation came later.
0: Were the reds typically blends as well?
1: No, reds were not blends. We always had, in my estate, Blaufringisch and Zweigelt. Maybe the blends started to be made in the area uh, in the 90s, when all those exotic uh, grape varieties got a new home. Then people started to blend maybe Cabernet with Blaufringisch and a little Zweigelt or whatever.
0: Are either of those red grape varieties sensitive to rot or to Botrytis?
1: Okay, in some years when there is a lot of Botrytis, red grapes can also get Botrytis. And I remember in 1984, was one of my first years, in this year um, we also had Botrytis on the Zweigelt and we had Zweigelt Beerenauslese. Really interesting wine, In it has a kind of brick colour. And had a certain sweetness of about 80 grams. We still have a couple of bottles. But normally, we try to avoid this on red grapes.
0: And how have you found your dry wines to age? Like in terms of the different white varietals that you make and then also the different reds, you know, what's the window for drinking them? Are they best on release? Or are they best after five years? And what should I be thinking about?
1: It depends. By example, Pinot Gris, um, very good is 2009 Pinot Gris at the moment. So if anybody has one in his cellar, it's really good right now. I think it depends mostly on the vintage. Like 2002 wines are very nice now, 2003, so they can age. And I experienced that with the dry wines, when the acidity is not too high, what means between, let's say, around about six, they age the best.
0: How often does that happen?
1: Most of the years. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah.
0: So what are years that, because uh, th- it's not a vintage chart that I'm super familiar with, so what are years that have been good for dry wines in, in roost?
1: Um, in the last years, it was 2015, 2013, 12, Um, honestly 10. 10 was a vintage which, yeah, people were not so happy about it. And it was a very small vintage. But I think those wines are so elegant and so, so unique. And they can also age very, very well. 2009 was good. 2006... So with the dry wines. 2002 was super good, 2004.
0: The sweet wines are um, the other years, or is it? uh...
1: You know, we have sweet wine years with botrytis, and sometimes there are years in between where we have these dried grapes, maybe a little bit of botrytis, but most of the berries are dried, like 2013, 2011, red wine years, actually. And those sweet wines, mostly we don't have a lot, maybe one, two barrels. But these wines are really good. They are almost like Jurancon sweet wines, so very fruit-driven and without any botrytis aroma.
0: Your dad made wine, and then uh, you made wine, and now your two boys are going to make wine. You had a long time there with your dad. He was around for quite a bit of your career. Uh, before he passed away. So now that you are somewhat in a similar situation with your own kids, working with them, what is important that really stands out for you to share with them when you talk about the wines and the winemaking?
1: That's a very interesting question. The question they mostly ask, and and it reminds me always when they were very small, of course, you know, this why question. Why why are you doing that like that? that and you know uh, being long years in a winery you sometimes have no explanation anymore because it's so it has become so normal so i have to rethink many things and and by rethinking and discussing we are changing it already so uh, these are more the processes we are not we are not discussing really profound things right now but many many things of processes uh, and questioning about them and and maybe changing them immediately yeah
0: so has there been a fair amount of generational handoff in roost you know during the period of time that you've been making wine have you seen other wineries move from generation to generation
1: a lot yeah And it's, especially in Rust, we have this very happy situation that we have a strong group of uh, winters, wine estates, uh, with older, experienced people and also the young people. So it's a really good mixture. And when we come together, there are big discussions and sometimes really, yeah... uh,
0: it's a little testy sometimes, yeah. little strength of characters yes. come out.
1: Strong characters, uh, but always, always productive.
0: What do you see as the challenges and the path forward for Wines from Roost in the future? Like, what do you think the next evolution of, of Roost Wines is going to be or needs to be?
1: Maybe making different vineyards, single vineyards from this variety. Because we nowadays we have them on three different vineyards. So maybe in the next few years we will make single vineyards, uh, single vineyard wines. Uh, sweet wine, of course, and Blaufränkisch. And Välsch Riesling. I like that variety very much. And I, I think from this variety we can do much more. Because Welsh Riesling has been famous during the last 20 years as a crisp, light white wine, which is drunk in summer, maybe the, uh, in the best case, the first summer after the vintage. But I think if you leave the Welsh Riesling longer, and I remember when my parents spoke about this this golden drop on, on the Welsh Riesling grapes, you have to wait for that. And if you, that meant longer, longer outside, maybe until October, pick it later, and then make a really interesting, deep, full-bodied Welsh Riesling.
0: I see. So it's really a textural change. It yeah. has the potential to do something yeah. else.
1: Yeah, not a mass wine, not an uh, easy drinking. Uh, that also has, has its place, but uh, I think it can do much more.
0: Do you see a difference between how you handle your uh, vine rows versus your neighbors, like in terms of height or training? Do you do something in, in particular that maybe your neighbors don't do?
1: With the full mint we we always, because we are all still learning, uh, you see the full mint almost died out in our area because it was so sensitive to mildew uh, and uh, we only started maybe in the 90s to get these 10 hectares which are now grown in rust so we are still learning i mean 20 years is yeah not a lot and this year we will prune them on small spurs only and we will have a look what it makes on scrape variety
0: Heidi Schrock has the advantage of a history that goes back to the 16th century, but a mindset that's still learning. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. <laughs> Heidi Schrock of the Heidi Schrock Winery in Roost in the Bergenland in Austria. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett.